Thank you for listening to the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue in our series, 29, the book of Acts. If you've got your Bibles, <clears throat> go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your phones, turn them on. Unless you've got an Android, just leave that thing in your pocket. Can't afford you guys. Taking, come on. Amen. Man, y'all can't be taking all of our Wi-Fi and all the service. Got to keep that thing in your pocket. We're continuing in Acts 29, though. We, we're, 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 we've, uh, you guys, I said, say, you guys have been painting uh, just this picture the last couple weeks of we are the 29th chapter of the book of Acts. Uh, there is not a 29th uh, chapter in the book of Acts, meaning that we are that continuation of the gospel story in the church. And so we've been looking at the, the narrative story. And so we get today to uh, Paul. And, and as you guys, I think, introed him uh, last week, we're going we're gonna to break down his life a little bit more. But before we start, has anybody ever seen the movie The Truman Show? Right? Jim Carrey? Yeah, a couple people. If you haven't seen it, you've had 15 years. I'm about to ruin it for you. But Jim Carrey plays this character, Truman. And uh, somebody corrected me uh, last service. I had... Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was like, is that Steve Carell that plays in that? And I looked it up, I was like, no, it's Jim Carrey. It's Jim Carrey, not Steve Carell. Last service, I said, Steve, Carell's the, uh, Steve Carey is the main character. So it's Jim Carrey is the main character. But Jim plays this character, Truman. And as far as Truman knows, his life is like everybody else's. Right? Like Truman grows up, he, he lives in this little town, he's got his house, he's got his shops, he's got his friends. But what Truman doesn't know is that his whole life is actually a TV show. Right, like all of uh, the places he goes has been preset. All of his friends and the people uh, he encounters are actually other actors and actresses. And, and Truman, eventually, as he gets older, starts to realize and understand that I, I think something's off a little bit here. Like I thought that person died, but now they're now in season seven, and I don't understand how they came back to life as a different character. And, and he just starts to understand. But the draw is. The fans of the Truman Show love it, right? Like they're tuning in. They can't wait to see what Truman's going to do when he wakes up today. They can't wait to see how this narrative's going to play out. And there is, in that movie, it paints this picture that we as people love other people's lives. Like we just love to know what's going on in somebody else's world. Right, and so we've got uh, documentaries. And we've got uh, docu-series. Anybody like reality TV? Anybody? Shame on you guys, man. We know who you are. Can't be true, you reality TV fans, man. Better TV than that. But we've got reality TV and we've got biographies and some of you uh, scholars other than us Netflix folks, you like to read and so you're into the autobiographies. And in all these scenarios, the common theme is that those things are popular because we are, we got this bent towards, we just like knowing what other people are doing. Uh, we, like, we just like knowing what's going on in somebody else's life. We want to know maybe how jacked up they are. It makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. Kardashians, right? Like we look at them and we think, gosh, that I ain't that far off, right? <laughs> we, may, we may look at the Navy SEALs and we think, man, like if I could be a little bit more uh, like a Navy SEAL, I could, I could create some discipline and, and some good habits. And, and, and we've got this obsession with learning. And the truth is that we can take so much in from other people's lives. We can learn a lot. Sometimes it could be, what is it here that I want to apply? What are some of the things that maybe I need to, to chew on and spit out that, that, that aren't good for me? But there's value in 
observing and learning from other people. And so we get now into Acts chapter 9. And the warning I want to make sure too is that as we read uh, the book of Acts, it is narrative scripture, meaning it is not like uh, when Paul will write to the churches uh, in the epistles and other books of the Bible where it's more like uh, instruction and teaching and reproving and, and correction. But it's a narrative. It's like reading a story or a biography in a sense. And so what we've got to be careful of is that we don't take the story of narrative scripture and try to carbon copy it or cookie cutter it on our life and then we can manipulate things in scripture that really aren't meant to be the way that we maybe try to interpret it. And I say that to say like we're going to read Paul's story and Paul's story is unique and there's things that we'll see that we can apply to our lives but I'm not Paul. As much as I may want to be Paul, God has created me to be Benji. And so if I try to copy everything like Paul, then I'm going to miss out on what God has created me to be. And so for us, as we read narrative scripture, which is Acts and a lot of the Old Testament and Genesis and all these, these people in scripture, don't read it so much for the sake of I've got to apply exactly the way that this story reads to my life. But rather, when we read narrative scripture, we ask a lot of questions. Right? That's where we ask, like, what can I learn? What, what can I observe? What could I maybe uh, take from their life to then apply? What do I maybe need to try to uh, avoid as I read about these, uh, these people or these stories? And so we're going to start out in Acts chapter 9, verses 19. Last week, real quick, just to, just to kind of recap a little bit of where we've been so far. Like Saul has had this radical transformation with Jesus. Like Saul was persecuting the church, he was putting people in prison, he was trying to obliterate and dismantle uh, the early Christians. And on his way to Damascus to continue on this tirade, Jesus wrecks him and grabs a hold of his life. Literally strikes him down, he's blind, he can't see anything. Jesus speaks to him, the guys that are with him even hear this voice but see nobody and they are, they're tripping out. And so we see that, that, that Saul or Paul, we'll, we'll say Saul, Paul, it's the same person. We'll go back and forth a little bit and, and, and maybe what I say, but same guy. Saul has this radical transformation with Jesus. He cannot deny any longer that he who I've been actually persecuting really is he who is God. And so then we get to verse 19 in chapter 9. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers, those are Saul's followers, took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was now a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him also. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened in the Lord. Living in the fear of the Lord, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. And so we read this now, recognizing how to interpret narrative scripture. And we ask the question, Lord, what do you want us to learn from these early parts of Paul's life? What is it that we can read, that, that we can, can observe, and that we can begin to apply for us? We've got to ask these questions of what we can learn. First thing, if you're taking notes this morning, is this, that Saul immediately went to the people that he could relate to and shared the gospel or the good news of Jesus with them. It says that at once, right after Saul had this radical transformation, verse 20 says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. David Guzik said that because Saul was a skilled student of the great Gamaliel, he took advantage of the custom that invited any able Jewish man to speak from the scripture at synagogue meetings. He took advantage of this opportunity immediately. So what we see here is that Saul has had this radical change. The Lord has, has wrecked him, ha, has revealed himself to Saul as being God. And it says immediately Saul went and engaged the synagogue. Now, in that time, because of Saul's upbringing, because of the way that he was raised, because of his educational level, he would have immediately had clout and the ability to step into a synagogue and be able to share from the scriptures. So it, it would almost be like having, you know, some seminary with uh, um, a graduate with all these doctorates and majors and all these things in religious type matters that says, man, whenever we meet in church, you're a lot smarter than I am. You're probably a lot more skilled in the scriptures. So feel free to come up and share something from the scriptures with us to help us understand. And so because Saul studied under this rabbi and the rabbi was so well respected, he was taught and had one of the greatest educations that there was. And so Saul knew this. And so Saul knew, I've got clout with the synagogue. I've got this relatability. I've got this uh, relationship to where I know that I can go and begin to share the gospel there. And so Paul, as soon as he begins to walk with Jesus, it says that he immediately began to teach. And we read this and we think, well, what, how, how does this actually apply to me? And recognizing that Saul immediately went into the sphere of influence and the arenas in which he could relate to to share the gospel. And so we read that and we ask, well, how does that apply to me? And for us, it's recognizing that every single one of us in this room, by the way that you were raised, by your family, by your upbringing, where you went to school, the job that you have, we all have a unique set of giftings, an arena of people that we are around and engaged in, that God has specifically formed for a unique opportunity for us to share the gospel with. I'll prove it to you that if you're a firefighter, then you understand the culture, you understand the schedule, you understand the language, you understand that culture of what it's like to work in a fire station. You've got a unique ability to connect with those guys. For dad and I playing sports, we understood the culture of the locker room. We understood the culture of travel, the culture of, of playing the game of baseball. We had relatability to those guys that not many could. If you're a teacher, if you work in construction, depending on whatever your sphere that you operate in on a day-to-day -day basis, it is unique and you have an opportunity to relate to those people in a way that I might not be able to 
or that your neighbor might not be able to, or your husband or your wife might not be able to. And so Paul knew this. He says, man, I know that I've got a sphere of influence. I know that there is a group of people in which God has uniquely wired me to go and to share. And Paul, he didn't, he didn't waste any time. He says, man, like, I, I know I've got clout here. And immediately Paul stepped into the arena. He knew that he could influence with the gospel. And realizing that we all have a unique arena that God has gifted us with and given us the ability to go and step into. Paul, he, he didn't immediately get thrust into this worldwide ministry that we know that he has now, right? Like we, we are here reading about him today because God used him to stretch across the world. And we, we would assume like, well, God, as soon as Paul was, was converted, he must have just had this natural gifting and began just to preach to any and everybody. But it says, no, what, what he did was he knew he had relationship with these few and he immediately stepped into that in obedience. And so then we asked, we're like, God, well, what is the influence? What, what is that sphere that you've given us? Who are those people that you've uniquely crafted for me? When I first got saved, again, right at eight years ago now, I, I began walking with Jesus, and the Lord opened up a door at, at Middle Tennessee for me to start uh, leading our FCA huddle gatherings. Uh, there was probably 12 or 15 of us. We meet in this little house on Monday nights. And guys, I, I didn't know. I had grown up in church. I didn't know how to lead. I didn't know how to even really understand what I was reading. But God's like, I, I'm, I'm opening up this door for you to begin to share with your peers. And I was terrified. And I got, I'm sure I jacked it up. I'm sure it was a mess. Like I'm, I was still <laughs> trying to figure it out myself. But God said, here's an opportunity. You've got, you've got some clout here. You've got some relatability with these people. Go. Years later, it would be uh, beginning to, to lead in some young men's small group, guys in their teens and early 20s. And I remember one Sunday, we were about to kick off a new group, and I would left a Sunday morning here. And I was driving back, and I remember I almost just texted these guys and was like, man, we're just going to bang it tonight because I just, I was like, God, I don't know what we're going to do. Like, for all I know, we're going to get in this room together, and we're going to stare at each other. It's going to be awkward. Nobody's going to want to come back, and I'm going to ruin it. And I remember driving down the road that day and the Lord's like, I don't, I don't need you to try to figure out how the rest is going to play out. I've given you the opportunity, like you've got influence here. Your sphere's not big. It's not global like Paul's ministry will grow. But he said, man, I've got, there's this group. There's this unique group that they'll listen. You can relate to them. You can have impact with them. And all God's saying is, if you will just take that step of faith, you don't have to know how the rest will play out. You just got to trust that I'll honor that faith. Right? And then, then years later, we'd move into when I was playing ball, and we would do Bible studies with my teammates in hotel room, dining rooms, and conference rooms, and, and clubhouses, and all these places that, that was just, it was just the environment. Like, we, we could just do life here. Why? Was it fancy? Was it church? Was it proper? No, but it was a sphere of influence. And God said, man, if you'll just honor me, if you'll just take that step of faith, and I can use that. And so we do. We want to ask the Lord, where, where is that sphere of influence? Is that my job? Is that my recovery group where the Lord has set me free and I can, I can speak to those people because I understand what that pain's like? I can understand the culture of the job. I understand what the family dynamics are like because of what we do. I can, I can speak into that because Jesus has done something to me. 
and realizing that like this, this is our immediate mission field. It doesn't take us to save up these thousands of dollars and catch a plane and, and have to fly somewhere else. But realize, man, we all have this unique, uh, very specifically crafted opportunity of a mission field that God's saying, man, if you'll just trust me and take this step of faith, I can use you here. And we see that this is where Paul started. He started, uh, he started small. Second thing we see in verse 21, the first part of 21 says, all those who heard him were astonished. And then verse 22 says that Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is Messiah. We read this scripture as back-to-back verses. Right? Like it's bam, bam. Like he, he taught in the synagogues, he grew in power, he baffled people. But what history tells us, and Paul will allude to this in some of his later epistles, is that in between verses 21 and 22 is actually a two to three year period of time. Right? So there's two to three years between Paul saying, this is the influence I can go and speak to, and him baffling the Jews and growing more and more in power. And in that two to three year period, what we know about Paul's life is he was actually uh, invited by the Holy Spirit and ended up going into the Sinai region of Egypt, which was nothing but desert. It was desolate. It was hot. It wasn't wasn't the the, the sexy, cool place to want to go. But he was invited by the Lord for two or three years to step into the wilderness in solitude with Jesus. And in that two to three years, Jesus began to mold him and form him and root him deeper and deeper in who he was. To where we then read in verse 22 that he grew in power, but it wasn't this immediate, I stepped into this power of God, but the power that came was by him resting and waiting with Jesus. How did he grow more and more in power? Because he spent deep, intimate, intentional time with Jesus. If you're taking notes this morning, I'd write this down, that intimate time with Jesus is a must for real spiritual maturity to take place. Intimate time with Jesus is a must for real spiritual maturity to take place. Saul, he's one of the greatest Christians to ever live. Like other than Jesus, like we've got Jesus who is God. Nobody, nobody tops him. But then Paul's, I mean, Paul's right there. Like we, we are now thousands of years later reading the teachings of Paul's and the, and the life of Paul and applying his life to us. Like Paul was a dude for Jesus. And we can read the story of Paul and how scripture even has those verses side by side. We think like, man, I could never do that. Like that dude was uniquely gifted by God to do something I could never do. And true, he was uniquely gifted by God, but his reach expanded past that initial sphere of influence. Why? Because he spent deep, intentional, intimate time with Jesus early on. And that would set this precedent, I'm sure, for the rest of his life of realizing like, man, growth takes place in the waiting with the Lord. Growth takes place in that intimate, quiet time with Jesus. Scholars say that, that, that he went off to the Sinai region and he wasn't influenced by scholars. He wasn't influenced by other disciples. He wasn't influenced by the seminary dudes of his day. But he spent time with Jesus. And we think, how did this man who was martyring people or, or imprisoning people for Jesus become to be one of the most influential people of the faith because he spent time with him 
He just spent time with Jesus. And before he knew it, this small sphere of just the synagogue leaders who he could speak to began to expand and expand and expand. And we see that in Paul's life that the more he dug into this time with Jesus, it says that he grew in more power. And he grew in power. And he grew in understanding. And he grew deep with Jesus. And the foundation of who he was grew deep. And I want to say this too, that that those who try to build something too quick on a foundation that is not rooted in Jesus are building a flimsy structure that is bound to collapse. We'll see Jesus in, I think it's in Matthew 7, he talks about the difference between the wise man and the foolish man. He says, the wise man hears these words. He he hears the things that I speak to him. He, He hears my teachings and he applies it. And in that application of that time with Jesus, the the roots are dug deep. It says it's like building the house on a rock. Like your foundation is secure, it's stable, it's not wavering, it's not weak. Like it is embedded deep into the earth. And the picture is that when we spend this time with Jesus, like the roots of our heart are growing deeper and deeper. And the man that that tries to build too quickly, who immediately jumps into areas to where he's not spiritually mature enough yet to step into, is like creating this house or creating this structure with the foundation being sand. And the idea being that once the real pressures of life, once the hailstorms of life or the storms or the rain or the wind comes, that house is going to be pummeled. Why? Because it had no root and it had no foundation. It had no root that, that at some point in our time with Jesus, we have to slow down long and say, God, like, I've got all these dreams and aspirations. Like, I feel like I know what I want in life. I feel like I know where you're calling me. I, I feel like I know what the giftings are. If you would just let me run, I could do this. And the warning that, that needs to be given is that, yes, we can try to do that. And you may begin to build something. But if history tells us anything, it's like those who try to build too quickly, whether it's with weak character or a weak foundation or, or not really being rooted in Jesus, that those things will collapse. And there is tragedy and there is collateral damage that comes with that. But that the impact that, is, that, that, that comes and that has a deep, lasting impact is the one that is deeply rooted in who Jesus is. And so Paul was driven out into the wilderness for years to where he just sat with Jesus. And I, and I feel like I've been on a little bit of this journey, the Lord and I, the last couple of months of him trying to show me, like we, we so often, especially growing up in the South, whether you claim to be a follower of Jesus or not, we know a lot of Jesus stuff, right? Some of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, and if you grew up down in, in the Southern states, then you know, like we're, we're in church all the time. And as you grow up, we have this, a lot of head knowledge of who God is, We can have a lot of this knowing of God, and we know what he said, and we know the things that he did, but seldomly somewhere between here and here in the heart is there real intimacy and impact that's being had. And and so we learn a lot, and we know a lot, but yet there's this divide somewhere between our heart actually being intimately one and knowing Jesus. And in this waiting and in this formation period of Paul with Jesus or with us with Jesus, it's saying, God, I need you to break down these constructs in my mind that I've created that I think I know about you. 
Paul would have been, he would have blown most of us out of the water when it comes to intellectual ability. I don't know where all you guys are. I know he smokes me by a long shot. <laughs> but he would have known a lot. He had some of the greatest schooling, the greatest rabbis, the highest money to get him into, the greatest teachings he could. He knew a lot. And one of the first things Jesus does is says, I need you to be with me now so that this can begin, uh, begin to get kind of deconstructed from what's not true, but this will be rooted in intimacy with me. And the only way that this is rooted in intimacy is with intentional time waiting with Jesus. We think we know what's best, right? Like we think my timing, I know the timing that's best. I come from a line of caches, and patience is not our knee-jerk reaction. Like we're, I was telling somebody last year, I was like, we're quick on the horn when we're in the car. Like we, we are not patient people by trade. This is a little bit of a longer quote, but I, but I think it applies, applies so well for, for this passage. Chuck Smith, he said, I believe there's a great mistake that takes place in the church by laying hands on people too suddenly. I think that a tragedy has existed for years within the church whenever some Hollywood celebrity makes a profession of faith. Immediately, they're bombarded by every church and every conference to come and to be a conference speaker. And they're going around constantly giving their testimony week after week after week, here and there giving their testimony to excited crowds around the states. Well, unfortunately, they're spending so much time traveling around the country to give their testimony to the crowds that the only thing that they ever hear is their own testimony. Thus, they are never rooted and grounded in the word. They never get a foundation. And so many of these great celebrities who have gone around with their sparkling testimonies, after a period of time, we will say, well, what happened to so-and-so? To which the response is, well, he's back in that old life. It just didn't last. It's because the church has made a tragic mistake of assuming that because a person is brilliant in one field that he can immediately be a theologian or a teacher of the word. If God is calling you, God is not in a hurry. We are the ones that are in a hurry. And God wants to prepare those instruments that he will use for his work. Man, like our tendency is... Like, oh, you've got a gifting, or you've got this talent, or you've got this ability. Like, go. Go and build. Go and develop. Go and grow your ministry. Go and grow your reach. Use your social media as an influencer. Go and use your, your, your opportunities to impact people. And the warning is our culture has done a great job of saying every single one of you has a voice and has the opportunity to grow something of great influence. And the warning is that when we enable that too quickly, we are enabling people to build structures and things that are bound to collapse because the foundation is weak and there's no roots. And so we, we, we've got to be careful, guys, that as we look at Saul's life and as we, we read this story, we realize there is value in the waiting. Spiritual reach and impact takes time to develop. For your reach to extend past that initial sphere of influence, for that reach to grow to the next level, to, to continue to expand, the reach takes time to develop. I need this reminder as much as anybody. Again, we, I am not bent towards patience. 
And that's my wife. I am a, like, I, I, I like to, to get things done and do so in my time. And the Lord even recently was showing me, like, you've got a patience issue. Like, and I was reading this quote and, and just that whole idea of, like, if God is calling you in his timing, he will develop you. Far be it from us to try to speed past that. Like, good things take time. Wine takes time. If it's not taking time, it's just grape juice. I was thinking earlier, I was like, man, we need to get t-shirts that say wine, blue cheese, and spiritual depth. It just takes a little time. Like All good things in life. Come on. All good things in life take a little bit of time. The third thing we see here is that Saul's testimony proved his devotion. I want to go back to verse 26. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. I want to make this point kind of with one statement. And again, take a notes, write this down. Then I want, to, I want to show this through another story. But Saul's testimony, affirmed by Barnabas, was the confirmation that true change had taken place and of the powerful working of Jesus in Saul's life. There's a, there's a saying around here y'all use, right, that your story, what? It matters, right? Like your testimony Matters. We see that for the last three years or so, Paul had been radically changed. He went back and immediately, with great excitement and boldness, spoke to his fear of influence. Then in years of time with Jesus, he was molded more and he was deepened in his intimacy with Jesus. And now we get to where he comes back to Jerusalem. And you got to realize, like we can read this and think, how did the disciples not know? It's been a couple years now of Saul walking with Jesus. How did they not know that he wasn't really a disciple and realized like they didn't have cell phones they didn't have email they didn't have Facebook like they couldn't see that Paul checked into church at Damascus on a Sunday like they just didn't know and so he shows up to Jerusalem and all the disciples knew was this was the guy who was trying to dismember the body of believers all I know is last time we saw you or heard about you you were trying to completely deconstruct and tear down what Jesus came to implement I don't trust you man like your word, I don't know that I can trust the fact that you're just saying you're a disciple now. Like I've seen a good spy movie. I know how that thing works. Like they say they're somebody so they can sneak in and they start to dismember things, right? And so Saul steps in with these Jerusalem, these disciples, which is kind of the epicenter of where they still were. And they're like, man, I, I don't know that I can trust you. But it says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the, uh, to the apostles and says, guys, let me tell you what this guy's story has really been like. But Barnabas said, man, let, let, me, let me tell you, I know where he's been. I know his past isn't real favorable. I know he's got a little bit of a history to him, but, but let me tell you what Jesus has been doing in his life. And we see that our testimony and our story matters and can have influence. I want you guys to go to Mark chapter 5 with me real quick. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. We're not going to read it. 
I'm not going to read it all this morning, but, but here, here's what's going on here. Jesus is with his disciples. And Jesus, they, they cross over into a city of the Decapolis. It's this region of the ten cities. And they get out of this boat, and as they're, they're walking on the land, they approach this guy who was riddled with demons. Like as Jesus will ask him who his name is, he says, we are legion because we are many. Meaning like this dude had hundreds of demons in his body. He, he had been bound by chains. The, the, the demons had driven him out into loneliness where he was living in the tombs. He had, he had been chained and bound to the rocks, but because of his strength with the demonic power, he was busting the chains. He had no clothes on. He was naked. He was tore up. He was scratched. Like imagine one of the, the most terrifying figures you can see. And this is the guy that ruled that area of the tombs. And he was known for just the, the power of evil that had gripped this guy's life. And so Jesus and his disciples get off the boat and they start walking towards this guy. And I can only imagine the disciples are thinking, what are we about to do? First off, he's got no clothes on. Not to mention he's got chains dangling off his body. And then we get closer and we realize not only that, he is full of demons. And Jesus approaches him and he says, what is your name? And the demons start wigging out, and they're like, God, they start begging Jesus, like, please don't, don't send us back to hell. Like, at, at best, will you let us go into this herd of pigs? Like, we don't want to go back to hell, but, but he begins to, they begin to bargain with Jesus, and Jesus grants them the ability to go into these pigs. And in a moment of just a word spoken, this man who had terrorized that region, whose whole life had been gripped by evil, been gripped by depression, been gripped by addiction, been gripped by whatever Satan could fill him with in a moment, was set free. And, and the people who are hurting the pigs, they, they see that, that Jesus speaks this word into the man, and immediately the demons flood the pigs, the pigs run off the hill, the shepherds of these pigs are freaking out. They run back to their town to tell everybody what happened. And as they come back, they see this man who had been out of his mind. It says that he's dressed. He, he's sitting in his right mind with Jesus. And these people come up, and you can imagine, like, I have no understanding of how this man can now be sitting and reasoning, and he's, he's talking clearly, and, and I don't know who you are, who this Jesus guy is, but whatever you just did, I, I, I can't explain it, and it freaks me out. Not to mention, you just made all of our pigs run into the ocean, so now we got no money. Right? Like, they were ticked at him, and they were scared. And they said, you've got, you've got to get away from us. We just leave. One, we're mad that our financial uh, gain of, of our swine is gone. But, but how is this guy sitting here? Who are you? He said, they said, please leave. In verse 18, chapter 5 of Mark, it says that as Jesus was getting into the boat to leave, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him go, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, that's the 10 cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Why is this so important? 
we see the importance of this is, is that Jesus had done this miraculous work that nobody could explain. This man was gripped by the pit of hell. And in a word, Jesus gave complete freedom and restoration. And, and, and the people, they, they, were, they were freaked out again. They said, Jesus, we, we need you to get away. And Jesus didn't argue with them. He said, if you want me gone, I'll go. And he begins to get in the boat. But yet this man whose life had been completely restored walks up to Jesus. and He's like, can I please go with you? So that he begins to beg Jesus, let me come with you. Like, Jesus, if you leave, what happens if these things come back? What happens if the depression comes back? What happens if the addiction comes back? What happens if these attacks that have bombarded my life, what if they come back? Please let me go with you. You can't blame this guy for begging Jesus. Like, I want to be with you. I, I don't understand even maybe fully what happened, but I know that you bring healing and restoration. Please let me come with you. And what does Jesus tell him? He says, no. And we read this and we think, no. Jesus, why would you reject this man to go with you? Don't you want us to follow you? Why did you tell him no? Because Jesus said, go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And by the word of this man's testimony, it says the man went away and began to tell how much Jesus had done, and the people were amazed. They didn't want to hear it from Jesus, but they could not deny the fact that this man that they had seen full again of the depths of hell is now restored they didn't want to hear from Jesus. He had disrupted their, their financial institute. He had disrupted their, their understanding of even how this could be. So we don't want to hear from you. But Jesus says, they don't want to hear from me, but they will listen to you because you cannot deny the power of the story and the testimony of what God has done in your life. And so he says, you can't. You're not going to go with me. Why? Not because I don't want you to. Not because I don't want you to follow me. Because your story and your impact of your testimony can have a greater reach here. And so we go all the way back to point one. And we see that Jesus sent him back to the sphere and the arena and the people that he had influence with. The people that he could relate to. The people that he knew how to connect with. And we see like this, this just perfect circle. Like there's this, this transformation point up here of like God getting a hold of us, getting a hold of his people. And then the invitation a quarter of the way down is if you'll just go, if you'll just honor me and take a step of faith into the sphere and the influence that I'm giving you, then, then I can do something. And then we begin in that time, in those years to grow deeper with Jesus. And we begin to see his, his power through our steps of faith. We begin to see the fact that, that he is molding and shaping something in this time with him. And then that grows and our story and our testimony continues to develop to where we see that our story matters and it has impact. And then in that we're able to go back to the people and, and, and spend time teaching the good news to those we have influence in. But by the time we get back to this circle, our influence has grown and it expands and it continues to grow. And we see even here, like Paul, 
that this guy's story had power, it had importance, and it mattered. And so we go back to Acts, and we see that as Paul tries to enter, they're like, man, I, I don't know that I can trust your word. But then there's Barnabas who says, man, he, he was named Barnabas by the disciples because he was the man of encouragement. He was son of encouragement. And Barnabas says, come here, I'll go with you. I'll go vouch for you. I know that they don't, they don't understand. I know that, that all they can see is your past. And so often man only sees the, 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 the decisions of yesterday. But God looks and says, man, I see you for the grace of today. And I've seen the work that Jesus has done in you. And Barnabas says, come with me. I'll vouch for you. And maybe for some of us, like we're, we're being invited to be a Barnabas for somebody. Maybe there's that young believer around us that, that, that's like, man, I know that your family, your friends, your, your, your influence, I know that they don't really trust, but I've seen what the Lord's doing. I will vouch for you. But then we also see that, again, it's the testimony. It's the story of what Jesus is doing in you that has the power to then, as we see in Paul's instance, it began to open up doors and synagogues and other cities, and it tore down the walls of doubts from the disciples. It opens up doors, and it tears down walls. The band, you guys can, can head up this way. The transforming work of Jesus in your life is important, it is impactful, and it is powerful. The reality is, is that, that the enemy will want to come in. It will try to convince you that your story is just insignificant. It will want to try to discount the fact that, man, I really don't know that uh, what, what Jesus has done in your life, like it's really not that great, it's really not that good. Like I know you had this little emotional experience, but that's not enough to really have influence. And, and as soon as we begin to take steps towards the kingdom of God, there is going to be defense against the kingdom of darkness that's pushed on us. That's just a reality of the fact. Paul will write in Ephesians that there's this whole spiritual realm in which we can't even see that is wanting to pin you down and convince you that you're not good enough. And so when we recognize that, we can, we can step into this newness of faith and, and our story being developed and say, Jesus, I, I know what you've done. I just need your courage. I need your strength to take those steps of faith. And because of Jesus' grace, we take a step of obedience and say, Lord, I just want to be obedient with the group of people that I have influence with. And then in that influence, we say, God, I, I just want to know you more. I don't want to rush past this. I, I don't want to get too quick in life to miss the development of my heart and soul. I don't want to just know you up here. God, if I, if I never fully understand anything in here, but I know your love and intimacy and oneness with you here, then that is what I want. And so then we step into this time of, of, of saying, Lord, just mold me and shape me. And whether that takes years or, or decades, like I am desiring to be deeply intimate with you. And know that it is in that that Jesus is developing your story. He is constructing your testimony to where you do have influence. You do have uh, a power in your story that can reach people uniquely. Don't allow your past 
to, to try to dictate the influence you can have now, but rather the, the, the story of what Jesus has done in you can be powerful in the lives of others if you'll let it. So we're going to step into a time of, of worship now. And I would just invite you guys, like, one, spend time and just praying. Like, if you've never made that step towards following Jesus, as we talked about before, like, this is, church is not something we just show up to do. This isn't something to fill an hour and a half of time. Like, if you want to do that, man, you can go play golf or go bowling. You can kill time there. But this is actually a place to where we are converging with God and the angels in heaven to worship him. And so if you've never taken that step to follow Jesus, man, find one of the staff or the prayer team and begin to move towards what that looks like. And then for the rest of y'all, like, begin to pray, Lord, Lord, where is that sphere of influence? Where is that group of people that you're inviting me into to share with? And then for some of you guys, it may be, Lord, I just need you to give me patience in the waiting. Like, there is no time that is wasted or lost with Jesus. But in the time of formation, in those seasons of development, realizing that, that I just sometimes, I just need patience. I just need you to help me to trust that what you're doing and the timing of you doing it is worth it. There's communion on both sides of the room. I'd invite you to, man, take that communion with your wife or your friends or your family and recognizing that that wafer and that juice is the remembrance of what Jesus has done in your life. It is for those who, who are followers of Jesus. And we reflect on the, the, just the, the unity and, and the reuniting power of what Jesus did in our relationship with him. And so I invite you to step into that.